water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breath fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And then John 4, 7 through 24. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So bow your heads with me, I'll say a prayer. Father, thank you for this evening and the chance to worship you. Thank you for the snacks um, and the words and the friends. I ask that you be with us tonight that you open our hearts to hear your word um, and make us instruments of your will and of your grace. In your name I pray. Amen. This is like a really promising music stand. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever... Hey, um, I'm excited about that. Hey, welcome. Thank you for coming. Uh, how are we doing? 
Okay. Uh, contrary to that response, I am happy to be with you again. <laughs> I missed you guys last week in that awkward moment. Um, for those who don't know me, I am Sid Drew, and I am the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, which is also known as RUF. Uh, RUF is a Christian campus ministry at Davidson College that exists to serve the campus and also people like you, whoever and wherever you are. Uh, what this means is that RUF isn't meant for one kind of person. We're hoping to be for every kind of person. We want any person from any personal background, any social scene on campus to feel welcomed and at home here. And that means even if you're not exactly sure where you are, Jesus or Christianity, uh, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, or whether you feel comfortable somewhere in the smudgy middle or none of the above. Basically, uh, welcome. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're so glad you're here. And we really, especially if you're new, thanks for taking the time and the risk this time of year. Um, we're on the downward uh, acceleration time, aren't we? So, held together by scotch tape and prayers. So, anyway, so this semester in large group, we've been looking at uh, two different books of the Bible, the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, and we're studying these purposely together because together these two books give us an insight into how to process life. How do we process life? They show us together how to handle our emotions, how to make decisions, how to treat our relationships, and how to live more fully. And along these lines, I have an abbreviated version of my title for this semester, which is just called Sorting Life. So if you caught on to the pattern of the titles of the sermons, it is sorting plus the topic. So sorting our sex is today, et cetera, et cetera. Look forward to the next one. So the Psalms basically beforehand have taught us to sort or process our emotions before God and to God. And the book of Proverbs, uh, this second mini-series that we're entering into, has sort of taught us to sort our lives by applying God's wisdom to our decisions, and to our relationships, and to ourselves. So again, we're about halfway through the second mini-series of the spring semester of Large Group, which is exciting. Um, and we've talked about sort of how to get wisdom, what wisdom is, and we started to talk about how wisdom applies to life's bigger issues. Uh, a couple weeks ago, when I was with you last, we talked about um, what, how to make decisions, decision-making. Tonight, we're gonna talk about sex. So everyone looked up all at once. That was awesome. Uh, <laughs> Rose likes to do it something else. <laughs> this way, it gets worse. Uh, or be better. Uh, look, before I begin along those lines, let me say two general things about how I'm going to address sex. First, I'm going to attempt to speak freely and somewhat specifically about the topic of sex. Because as you just read in Proverbs chapter 5, the Bible speaks about sex in this way. It is free and specific. Um, you see, within our cultural moment, there's sh everyone's shouting about sex. Uh, everyone's shouting anywhere and everywhere and loudly about sex. And the Christian church is far too often silent on something that God is not at all quiet about. Too often, Christians treat sex like a library. right? We treat it like we're whispering and giggling, or we're shushing good conversations. So, Second, as we'll see, the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible treats sex as a wisdom issue. It treats sex along with alcohol and food and money and technology and even work um, as a wisdom issue. And what that means is sex is a good 
and powerful gift from God, but it requires a measure of self-control, and it requires a lot of Jesus' mending. I'm going to talk about both of this and some more. But before we look at connecting God's wisdom to our sex in the book of Proverbs and John chapter 4, I'm going to ask you again to pray with me, perhaps for me, uh, but also for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this time where we do get to talk about something that is on our hearts and minds, uh, according to research, every seven seconds. Uh, And I pray that you would be with us wherever we are with that topic, and that you would meet and minister to us, that you would help us to think about it in a new way, um, perhaps to act in a new way, but most of all, to see you, Jesus, and the way you care about us and care about our bodies, uh, the way you care about um, how we live our lives, and the way you care deeply about our hearts. And I pray that that would be um, a prevailing thing, that I don't have it all together, especially about this topic, but Jesus, um, you're careful, you're caring, and I pray that you, Jesus, would be highly lit up and more believable and beautiful in the eyes of our hearts. For this we pray, Jesus. Amen. So as many of you know, I have three little children. My oldest children are twins, six-year-olds, and a young four-year-old. Millie. Uh, one of the earliest things, if you kind of do, uh, if you have children, it's really cool to watch them learn how to speak and to name the world. And one of the first things that children say, um, my children said, and they said it a lot, was the word broken. They said broken a lot. When they were younger, they'd bring me a toy that wouldn't light up, and they would say, or this book that was a kind of a page ripped out, and they would say, broken. That's all they said, broken. You see, broken is not just a descriptor of a toy or a book. It's also actually a request from me, their father, to do something about the broken, to, to fix the toy or fix the book, to make it work like it's supposed to, to heal or repair it back to where it's supposed to be. And some things were pretty easy for me to fix. And we talked about this before. I'm not the handiest man. Uh, but some things were easy for me to fix. You know, they required new batteries or scotch tape. Uh, but other things were well beyond me. And as my kids get older, the things that they're asking me to fix get harder and harder to fix. Uh, for instance, they'll bring me a problem from the playground or a disappointed feeling, and I can't fix that broken feeling or that broken relationship. Of course, broken isn't just a description of reality, little children say. Uh, broken is not just a request that small, tiny hearts make about the world. Broken is something that all of our hearts are speaking about much of the time. When I think about our lives, and when I think about my life in particular, sex is one area where heart talk abounds about brokenness. Beautiful. Um, (laughs) Correct. Uh, (laughs) Let's pray. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so... This kind of brokenness outside of ourselves, uh, there's a brokenness outside of ourselves in society and the church and the brokenness within us. It's the kind of brokenness that new batteries and scotch tape can't really seem to fix. It's social, it's emotional, it's spiritual fragmentation that needs a healer. A healer who knows intimately who we are and infinitely what's at stake. The healer the Bible calls, especially this passage in John 4, the Messiah or Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. And so in our passages tonight, Proverbs chapter 5 and John chapter 4, Jesus is telling us a few important things about sex. First, there's a false intimacy 
there's a false intimacy that promises satisfaction but delivers fractures. False intimacy that promises satisfaction but delivers fractures. Second, there's a true intimacy which promises to fix what's broken outside and inside of us and delivers this healing through Jesus, who is the Messiah. And we see that in John chapter 4, verse 26. And really, like to summarize what the whole story of the Bible and the topic of sex is about, the basis is this. Jesus is the Messiah, and we get healed when we share our sexual longings and our sexual wounds with so I'm going to say it again. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And what that means is that when we get healed, when we bring our sexual longings and our sexual wounds to him and sort them with him. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, you've noticed I'm doing two passages at once, which you know, I'm used to preaching one passage at once, maybe some scattered verses and Proverbs. But So we're going to work back and forth, tandem style. So the outline in your handout is going to look a little different. Uh, we still have three points because, you know, Trinity. So um, we're doing three points still, uh, but we will kind of move, move it back and forth between two passages. So first, I'm going to do kind of a different approach, and we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 5 and John chapter 4 and what they tell us metaphorically. And this is really interesting. Sex isn't, is actually about more than just sex. Sex is actually about more than just sex. Okay, and we're going to talk about how sex is a physical description of our desire for intimacy. Okay. Second, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, and we're going to explore true and false intimacy as it relates to the human institution of marriage. Okay, we're going to look at true and false intimacy as it relates to marriage. Third and finally, in John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26, we're going to explore true and false intimacy as it relates to Jesus. That's what we're going, that's what we're up to. Um, so let's begin in a way we usually don't actually begin, which is huge, big picture. And I want to look at the way that the Bible describes sex in both Proverbs chapter 5 and John chapter 4, but also in many different places in Scripture, and obviously in culture as well. So look with me at those passages if you can simultaneously. And I'm going to say this. Both the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament and the book of John in the New Testament, written 3,000 years later, use the same image to describe sex, right? As a thirst, and then the drinking of water to quench that thirst. We see a thirst and drinking of water to quench the thirst. Proverbs chapter five tells us to drink the water from our own cisterns, flowing water from, our, from your own well. That is, it's how it talks about having sex with a spouse. That's the language that Proverbs uses. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus connecting the Samaritan woman at the well's desire for a drink of water to her five previous husbands and current live-in lover. So we see that imagery used again. So in fact, the Bible is using this thirst and water metaphor for sex in numerous places. I could have given you tons of passages. I spared us all that. Okay, But there are lots of different places you could look for this. And of course, um, most of you are thinking this and thinking, does he know this cultural reference? or maybe you've heard this said or read this text outside the Bible too, you hear things like this in pop culture. He's so thirsty. She looks thirsty. Or my favorite, the thirst is real. <laughs> okay. um, that's all I've got. And, uh, we're, maybe it gets awkward, more awkward than that, I'm not sure. Uh, but here we are. So we made it through. 
Okay, maybe not. Um, but notice the scriptures are also consistently pairing the description of sex as thirst with our spiritual longings. Such as when Jesus connects the Samaritan woman at the well and her thirst to his offer of living water, welling up to eternal life. Okay? This is because sex is a physical metaphor for something bigger, for a spiritual reality. Sex is the physical aspect of the thirst that we all share for something more, for connection, for union, for communion, for intimacy. Look, intimacy is about one of these words that we use a lot. It's about knowing and being known. It's about, in a holistic way, every part of ourselves, our spiritual selves, our emotional selves, our social selves, our economic selves, our mental selves, and our physical selves being God. I mean, think about the word in Hebrew, yada. Okay, and this is the word that's translated simultaneously to know, but then also in certain contexts to have sex with. Yada. Okay? And it points to this reality beautifully. The longing and enjoyment of sex is both an intense form of physical intimacy and it's a signpost. It's a signpost that points to a greater spiritual reality. Are we getting this so far? Okay. So that is sex is actually about drawing close and inside, getting gotten, relieving tensions, soothing and satisfying our, our desires and our hearts. Sex is being known in complete nakedness, down to every wrinkle, freckle, or birthmark, and being loved all the more. Ultimately, sex is the pursuit of a deep and personal spiritual intimacy it results in, its ultimate trajectory is a search for God. And this is why the theologian G.K. Chesterton says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. So here's what I mean. Sex is not just about hormones or urges or arousal or orgasm or endorphins. Sex is not some sort of mechanical behavior only, like a light switch that you turn off and on. Therefore, we need to speak as Christians differently about sex than we usually do. Okay? Our message can not only shout, stop it, stop it. Okay, we can't only just get the guilt and shame stick and beat people with it and just shame-filled submission. This is because behind sex, there's actually this beautiful reality, a desire for true intimacy, for union and communion with Jesus. But of course, sex can and often does devolve into false intimacy, right? So in the words of a counselor, Michael Cusick, sex, whether it's a brothel, whether it's masturbation, pornography, or a hookup, sex, oftentimes, when we think about sex, we get our wires crossed, okay? And here's how he puts it. We seek on a physical level what can only be obtained on a spiritual level. We seek on a physical level what can only be attained on a spiritual level. That is what the Bible calls lust, or counselors call false intimacy, that wire crossing. And this confused pursuit of intimacy actually makes sex really compulsive, a never-ending cycle that only leads to despair and desperation and bondage, an addiction to affirmation and affection, to safety and significance, that's so deep that purity pep talks 
and guilt and fear shakedowns only glance off the surface of our desires. So bringing us back to the biblical metaphor for sex as thirst, Frederick Buechner, Buechner of course, uh, I was talking earlier with someone about like, if you had Ario Bingo, he would be a place for uh, Frederick Buechner. So Frederick Buechner neatly summarizes how longing for and drinking in false intimacy only makes us thirstier. Okay, so this is how he puts it. Buechner writes, lust is the craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. Lust is the craving for salt of a woman dying for thirst. Everyone tracking with that? That's the definition of lust or false intimacy. So of course, some of you are asking, what do we do with all of this? First, I would love to take a step back and look at our contemporary views in this room of sex. And really, all I'm actually arguing is that our contemporary views are a heck of a lot lower, far too low, than the Bible's view of sex. Okay? So whether you've gotten increasingly uncomfortable every time I've said the word sex, which I've said it a lot so far, and especially that one time when I said orgasm, <laughs> maybe perhaps you're not really realizing that we do actually live in bodies. Or on the other side of things, you think that sex is just a natural animal appetite. And you're thinking, is it next week, is it gonna be on eating? Or like bathroom breaks? <laughs> as if bodies were all we are, okay? Either way, whether you call yourself a Christian knight or you wouldn't feel so comfortable doing that, we live in an age that has demystified sex to the point of boredom. Sex is not something to shun. It is not yet another technique and needs satisfaction of the organism. That's the first application. The second application is now that we see our own views of sex for what they are, the Bible is actually asking us to think and act differently, to accord what we do and what we think and what we feel to a more elevated view of sex. And we're called this elevated sexuality in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. And that's where we see our second main point, true and false intimacy inside and outside of marriage. We'll look at that together. Okay, So look at Proverbs 5 with me. And as we begin to unpack the imagery here, and the meaning of Proverbs 5, I want you to see something very clearly that I think I've probably said a bunch of times, but I'm going to say as clearly as possible. God is for sex in this passage. God is pro-sex. I don't know how else to put it. He is not just like sex as procreation. God is sex as rejoicing and delight. You see, God gave us bodies, and he made them feel sexual pleasure with each other. And unlike some, even in his church, God doesn't actually think sex is nasty or dirty. In verses 18 and 19, God is exhorting young men and old men, young women and old women alike, to have sex, to rejoice in the other person, and to delight in their body parts. Please know that these sexual directions are for men and women alike. So, the Christian message about sex is not prudish. It's not stop having fun sex. The true Christian message is actually embodied. Rejoice in your wife or husband. Be sexually decadent. Be captivated in their loveliness and love for you. And this is one way that we actually quench our sexual thirst 
for true and with true intimacy. We turn our sexual thirst towards a spouse and we drink deeply and repeatedly. You see, here's my point. Christianity isn't like advertising. Christianity is like art. Okay? Like the best poetry and the best music, Christianity is about rejoicing in the extraordinary that is invested in the seemingly ordinary. Okay? We're rejoicing in the extraordinariness that's invested in seemingly ordinary things. Christianity tells us to look, to see, to taste, to touch, again, the most ordinary, everyday things. Falling in love, breakups, streets we grew up in, freshly cut grass, trees wet with sap. Whatever it is, that's exactly what the verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 of Proverbs are asking us to do. Turn again to the everyday. Turn again to the familiar people like spouses and invest them with time and attention and sex. Okay? In a short story called Wife Wooing, John Updike gives a taste for this, for the artistry behind biblical sex. Just how joyous and mysterious and sexy a spouse could be. Okay? Updike is looking back on his seven-year marriage and a recent trip to pick up dinner for his wife and kids. And he says this, and it's gorgeous if you track with it. Seven years since I wed a wide, warm woman, white-thighed, wooed and wed, wife. A knife of a word that for all its final bite did not end the wooing, to my wonderment. We eat meat. Meat I rested warm from the raw hands of the hamburger <coughs> from the diner a mile away. A ferocious place, slick with savagery, wild with chrome. Young predators snarling dirty jokes menaced me. Old men reached for me with coffee-worn paws. I wielded my wallet and won my way back, back through the black winter air to the fire, the intimate cave where halloos and hurrahs that. Um, but at this point, some of you are like, does Sid realize we're single and not married? <laughs> what, what kind of application is that for me in college? Um, does Proverbs 5 have anything to say to us in college and unmarried? Perhaps you're thinking that. Well, verses 15 through 20 are contrasting two kinds of sex, right? Sex contained in marriage in a home fountain and sex outside of marriage spread through the streets public and shared. And at the heart of these contrasting image, these images is an intentionally loaded question. Would you rather drink from a private well, a private cistern, or would you prefer to drink from street gutters? That is the question it's asking. In less metaphorical terms, would you prefer to have sex and do sexual things this side of technical intercourse with one person in a lifelong private and intimate relationship? Or would you have casual sex? Would you get naked, near naked, with several different kinds of people and handle your sex casually with a few trial and error individuals you may or may not marry for the long term? That's the question posed by Proverbs 5. But look, outside of the book of Proverbs, many people are not convinced that true intimacy happens inside marriage alone. Statistically, at least 85% of Americans are favor premarital sex, 85%, okay? And so I would argue, though, that the Bible's sexual ethic isn't God just being mean or unrealistic, okay? God isn't like some old heavenly grandpa who, does, who looks down and says, I know how much you enjoy sex. 
therefore you can't have it, except when you're older and worse looking. Okay? Contrary to Sigmund Freud in the 1960s, sex isn't a universal need like oxygen, nor is a fundamental right like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Before some of you, though, dismiss this whole discussion as one big outdated prejudice, which is maybe the temptation of some of us, you need to look with me at the academic research. In 2013, the Ohio State University Department of Human Development and Family Science studied the topic of sex among college-age people. Professors Sarah Sandberg, Toma, and Claire Douche found that casual sexual relationships negatively impact college-age people's mental health. So you get that? Casual sexual relationships among college-age people negatively impacts mental health towards depression and even suicide ideation. This merely affirms the biblical idea. Sex is meant to bond a whole person to a whole person. It's part of the mystery whereby two people become one person, not just physically, but also emotionally, intellectually, socially, fiscally, and spiritually. All those aspects of the person. So to have sex outside of marriage is to fracture yourself and another person into to separate them out, to compartmentalize them. It separates physical union from a public pledge to share bank accounts, to share friends, to share secrets, to share joys, to share sorrows, as long as you both shall live. Listen to the way that psychiatrist John White, not our own John White, but a psychiatrist, <laughs> summarizes all of this. <laughs> the immediate erotic thrill is the most superficial benefit of the sex act. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. It is healing if it is the concrete sign of what is happening in the whole relationship. The uncovering of my inner self, the uncovering of my deepest fears and yearnings. If I do that, and as I tenderly look on the body of another, and as I experience what it is to feel the tenderness of another's caress, then the one who accepts and touches my in my most intimate body also caresses and touches my inmost being. So it also makes sense that sexual relations be confined to marriage for mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment. So mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment, but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's But there's some pushback. And the pushback against the Christian emphasis on sex, on sex inside of marriage is actually somewhat fair. As hinted by verse 21 of Proverbs 5, true intimacy is actually bigger, much bigger than married sex, because our spiritual thirst doesn't actually end after we say, I do. It does not end in marriage. Even good marriages, in the best marriages, people, I, still feel thirsty. We're still thirsty. And that spiritual thirst behind our sexual longings leads us to the third and final point, true and false intimacy as they relate to Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And we're going to walk through this passage in a narrative style. So if you look at the passage with me in verses 7 onward, we see the signs of the Samaritan woman's internal brokenness from her false intimacies, and they're clear signs, right? She's fetching water at high noon. 
which means she has a lot of secrets that are not secrets to anyone else around her, and they're avoiding play. She comes late to class and leaves early. She avoids eye contact coming up the hill in the early morning light. She sits by herself at commons and feels by herself at packed house meetings. No one else, not even her current but just friend's boyfriend, thinks enough of her to be with her sober and in the daylight. Then she's got this thirst, what one commentator calls an unquenchable thirst for love. She's drunk five previous men dry, and she's working on her sixth. She's offered her body, hoping that the guy she was with would see and love her soul, but that didn't happen over and over and over again. And it was yet another hookup that ended on the dance floor of the quarry, or with a roommate banging on the door, another relationship that ended in a fake false friendship because she secretly isn't a good enough Christian for him. And on their parts, each man has promised in so many words that this woman can have more than just sex, that she can have intimacy and connection. But each man has knowingly and unknowingly failed to deliver on that They've used her for physical reasons and dumped the personal parts of her. They've objectified her. They've be, she's become a two-dimensional pornographic picture. And so there is this Samaritan woman at the well at noon, and all she's got left is a permanent sense of shame. And she drags it around with her with an insecure pride and a private pain. Like all of us, the woman at the well is inbuilt with desires. She thirsts to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. Like most of us in this room, male and female alike, at significant points in our lives, she got her wires crossed and directed those desires for intimacy away from God and toward photographs and promises and body parts that can't quench a spiritual thirst. And this lust, this false intimacy, only makes us thirstier for the things that can't satisfy. Look, even if sex isn't your drink of choice, right? We're all still looking for attention and affection. We're all looking for security and significance, or even just something to take the edge off the stress or the boredom. And like the woman at the well, we return to that thing and draw water there day after day but it's hard to get enough, and, and it gets harder to feel any relief from the pain. But, but, we have a God, Jesus, who meets us in our very need. There he is, sitting on the rim of the well, in the very heat of the day at high noon. Like us, Jesus was tired and thirsty, but in his all-too-human need, Jesus offers us something that can only be brought about by his all too divine nature. He offers eternal life and eternal satisfaction. A living water that gives us true, slaking, spiritual intimacy and drips and drops here, but like a rushing river in heaven. You see, Jesus has faced our every temptation and succeeded where we failed. He lived not to drink us dry, not to use us and dump us in our humanness, not to leave us wrapped in shame, but to die on a cross for us. 
to give us his purity and his passion, to love us with affection and attention, safety and significance. Us, you and me, no one is too far gone. Jesus heals. He fixes us in our broken condition, smoothing our fault lines. And this doesn't mean we ever get done with feeling thirsty here on earth. It means that Jesus kisses our wounds and splints our brokenness. He oh so slowly heals our hurts and he tenderly reorders our disordered loves. Let me end with this hope. Last week I was gone and I was at my uh, alma mater, graduate school, this is my alma mater undergraduate, um, Reformed Theological Center in Orlando and I went to speak about what I do, which is kind of a weird thing if you think about it. Uh, and during one of these conversations with current students, we were just talking about what it was like when I went there, which is probably really entertaining for me and terrible for them. Um, and I, t- I was talking about this class I took called Sexuality and Sex Therapy, which I did take that class. Um, as you can imagine, it was pretty intense and oftentimes extremely uncomfortable, uh, but there I was for a week intensive. And the term paper for this class was one of the last papers I actually wrote in seminary for graduate school before I began full-time ministry. Uh, But it wasn't like a term paper in the sense that you guys are used to writing. It wasn't a research paper. It was a sexual history paper where I sat and wrote, I was asked to trace and catalog all the many fracture lines of my personal sexual brokenness and commit them to a hard drive and on a piece of paper. So, of course, I put off the assignment uh, <laughs> until the night it was due. And then the night it was due, I wrote down all of my thoughts. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I kept on writing late into the night and early into the morning. I wrote about my relationship with my dad. I wrote about my childhood fears. I wrote my high school, college, and seminary lusts. The questions I still have about how to be a man. And, of course, my insecurities that this me was going into Christianity. In total, I wrote 14 pages. 14 pages tracing the intricate details of my sexual brokenness from childhood to grad school graduation. And you won't believe this. I had to do this. I printed off the paper, put it in an envelope, and mailed it to Colorado, where the professor lived year-round. And as I stamped and addressed and mailed my most personal longings and crushing sins. I imagine my female professor somewhere in Colorado casually sitting with a cup of coffee, a red pen, and a stack of papers (laughs) oh so gently flipping through my confessions of inadequacy. And so months later when I had moved across the country and begun work as a college minister at New Mexico State, I received the same brown envelope I had mailed and And I waited for a while, of course, to open it. (laughs) And when I finally did open it, I reread my paper, which was painful enough. And then I got to the end of the paper and braced myself for her comments, for my professor's comments. I imagined moral disapproval mixed in for good measure with spelling corrections. (laughs) (laughs) But to my surprise, as I read the comments, as I reread the paper, then read the comments, I start tearing up. Let me just quote some of what she wrote to you because I bet a lot of us have this feeling. A lot of us 
what I'm asking us to do feels like sharing our deepest, most private wounds, that idea of Jesus, that faith and that trust that I'm asking us to do, it feels like mailing our secrets to Colorado in a brown envelope. So it fits to share how this loving, distant feeling figure actually traced the lines of my brokenness after me. This is what she wrote. Professor Hirsch wrote, thank you for letting me read this, Sid. It was a true privilege. Although you write your story beautifully, you don't consider it a beautiful story. And I pray that you feel the kiss of Jesus on your heart and that your heart burns with a kiss and not your failures or humanness. I pray that your heart burns with the kiss of Jesus and not your failures or your humanness. Do you get, do I, do we get that Jesus is kissing those very parts of us that we name ugly, those very parts of our histories that we hide in the dark? Do we trust tonight that Jesus' kiss burns away our fears and our failures? All we have to do is come to Jesus with our hurt and heavy hearts, and we only have to say one word, broken. Broken. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that we would do that, that we would utter that description and make that request. It's a lot here. Um, I'm sure I've offended everybody myself, and I pray that you, oh Lord, would heal, that you'd meet us where we are in skepticism, uh, in sadness, in hurt, and maybe some of us feel triumph somehow, and I pray that you would meet us and show us that you care, that you care about us, that you care about the things that we care not to think about. Jesus, meet us. Meet us at our knees.